and that's why I think it's even more important to to revisit uh, this play and others that uh, retain these themes of, yes, you can still be a dreamer. Um, yes, you can still live with your head in the clouds despite, um, you know, the limitations that society places on you for your sex or your gender or, you know, your identity, uh, your race. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody, to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen, and this is the point where Jackson would usually say, and I'm Jackson Nikolai, but this is our special guest episode for season six. So I am running without Jackson Nikolai, and we have our special guest with us here today. We are really, really excited about this conversation. I am thrilled to welcome Kay Edmonds to the podcast. Kay is an actress, a director, and a writer. We got connected with Kay because she directed the play that we are about to talk about at Albion College in Michigan, and that is a college where I have a friend who's on faculty there, and so she was able to connect us, and so we're really excited to have a practicing theater artist, somebody that directed the show we're talking about as kind of a unique, different insight view on the script than the one that Jackson and I would usually be able to provide. So welcome to the podcast, Kay. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Jacob. Great. You just want to tell us a little bit about who you are and maybe you, what your experience was like directing this script. Uh, I think it was just in this past fall, wasn't it? Yes, it was just in the fall, which was an amazing experience because having been shut down, <laughs> I was uh, literally in a show at the Purple Rose. We had, I think, two or three days left and they, before the, they pulled the plug and you know the whole bottom fell out. So not having uh, to been able to do much in the way of performance or, of course, directing opportunities. Um, here comes uh, Albion College saying, hey, we want to try and do something and not just do something online, but in person. Uh, so that was an amazing opportunity. And it, it still gives me tingles to think about because I have not had the opportunity to, to participate in any live theater since. So um, I'm still kind of floating on that high. But um I am from the Detroit area. I've lived here all of my life. This is my home base. Um, and I love the city to life and to be able to direct something written by a Detroit native and then uh, to be able to do it in person during the pandemic. And it was just amazing. I'm a, a little bit of my background. I'm a a uh, writer, not so much in the writing, but uh, definitely in the acting and the directing. I write a little bit. It's sure. hard to put your stuff out there, you know. That's, it is. That's yeah. a totally different um, landscape that I'm still kind of navigating. But um, I do a lot of sketch comedy in the past and uh, musical theater I sing as well. So uh, this play had everything that I enjoy um, in the theater world, uh, from how it's written to the characters, to the music, you know, that is, is the heart of Detroit, you know, Motown music. Uh, so it, it was just a great experience for me. 
That's so awesome. And and the play that we're doing today, I think that I neglected to say it before that, was De- we're talking today about Detroit 67, a play by Dominique Morisau. And I think f- from what I remember, I've seen some of the production photos that my friend on the teaching faculty shared with me. And it was an outdoor production that you directed of the show, like on the kind of huge steps of one of the historic campus buildings. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. We were right on the stairs of the Kresge building which is, uh, you know, a staple there at Albion College. And um, it, it was on the quad. It was the quintessential, like, college experience. Um, <laughs> we were on the quad. We invited the students and the faculty and the community. Um, we had our little circles, our little bubbles, so that families and people who are in their own uh, COVID pods could enjoy. Uh, people brought their lawn chairs and their blankets and their popcorn. And... Um, you know, we were blessed because in Michigan, uh, the weather, especially in the fall, <laughs> can, <Yeah. laughs> can be quite treacherous already. And um, we're not too far north. Uh, Albion College is more on the western side of the state going towards Chicago. But um, it, we didn't have any rain. And that was, you know, one of the main things. What do we do if it rains as we're trying to plan this thing? But uh, we didn't have any rain. It was only a somewhat bitter cold one of the evenings. Um, so our patrons obviously had no problem being prepared for that because we do live in Michigan. But I was worried for our actors. I'm like, okay, they've got to get through this weekend healthy and happy, hopefully, yeah. you know, um, as the play takes place in the summertime. So uh, they yeah, have- that is interesting. It's a July play and it, in Michigan in the late fall would have been a little bit different. <laughs> little, little, little nip, tidbit nipply, as we used to say back in the day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, everything just came together and just talking about it, I'm getting goosebumps still because it, it really was a magical experience from the, the students stepping up to making sure that, you know, they remain safe outside of rehearsal so that this could continue. Everyone just really had a deep commitment to putting this on because we had nothing else to grasp to, you know, but it was nice to have something that to hold on to and have this common goal of bringing this so needed message uh, to the community. Well, that that's such a, a powerful experience to remember of uh, doing a kind of production in the middle of the pandemic. The, the experience that I was able to have doing a similar kind of outdoor production in the fall during the pandemic was not of this play, of a different play, but it similarly is going to kind of stick with me for the challenges and the way that the ensemble had to overcome. And we're, we're excited to get to talk about the script today, about the characters, about the structure, all the things that we get to talk about. And we're excited about the having a special guest. It's one of the things that we love most about doing no script. Jackson and I feel really strongly that, you know, trying to bring in different perspectives every season from different kinds of artists, from academics, from practicing artists, from people who know uh, a different kind of culture around the play. I'll forever remember the conversation with a math professor that I had about the play Proof. That was a fantastic special guest episode. So it's a great part of no script and 
if you are not already a supporter of No Script on Patreon, I'd love to encourage you to head on over there, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. That's where you can support what we do over here on the show. We love it. It's a passion project. It's not free to do, and we rely on our patrons to support us. We have some fantastic patrons that support the work we do. If you want to be one of those patrons, you can go over there, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. You can choose a monthly tier. All the different tiers have uh, just a different monthly amount that can be withdrawn and donated to support the cost of the show. The lowest tier is just a dollar a month. It totals $12 a year. Uh, Very affordable and very, very helpful to support the cost of running the show. At any level, you become a patron on Patreon and you can get access to our patron-only posts where we post reflections on seeing shows, uh, we post more advanced notice of the scripts that are coming up, other pieces of art that interest us. You can find that all over there. Again, if you haven't already considered supporting it, I really hope you will. And to all of our incredible supporters that are already making that contribution to help the show keep going, thank you so, so much. Literally, we could not be where we are without you all. So thanks again for that. And now, back to the script. So, uh, this is the section of the episode where I'm just going to give a brief context and synopsis. Um, in our special guest episodes, this usually ends up with whichever of us is the regular host talking with the guest, talking for a longer amount of time than we would normally talk at one time. So, I appreciate the audience out there sticking with me. We would usually switch this off, but we try to prepare all of that. So, let me just give you a brief context and then a synopsis of the show, and then we'll hop in and have what I'm sure will be a really fascinating conversation with Kay. Detroit 67 is a play that was first produced in 2013. It was presented off-Broadway at the Public Theater in association with the Classical Theater of Harlem and the National Black Theater in New York City. It did transfer and do runs with those different groups after its off-Broadway run. Um, It's been a a really popular play on the regional professional theater scene since that 2013 production. So what, eight years now? Um, Places like uh, Playmakers Rep, which has a nice little reputation in North Carolina, did it in like 2016. The Blackfriars Theater in Rochester did it in 2019. The Hartford Stage did it in 2019. Virginia Stage Company. Those kinds of regional professional houses just go on and on with the professional productions that were done of this script. The script won the Edward M. Kennedy Prize for Drama, which is a prize that specifically goes to drama inspired by true events in American history. And we'll talk about that when we get to the synopsis, that this is a a very much a historically rooted play in what went on in the long, hot summer of 67 in Detroit specifically, but then, of course, also all across America. Um, Dominique Morisseau, she has written the, this, this specific play as the first of kind of a trilogy of plays that she calls the Detroit Project. Um, and this is a cycle of plays that all take place in Detroit and kind of track some of the development of the city from, this is the first of them, so from the 60s to Skeleton Crew, the final play of that cycle just took, you know, takes place about 10 years ago. And so, um... We had the really great opportunity to talk about Skeleton Crew in one of our past seasons and thought that was a fascinating discussion. And and some of the interesting theatrical things that she did here, especially the way that Dominique Morisot uses transitions in a really specific and rooted way, happened in both Skeleton Crew and here in Detroit 67. So that's interesting for those of you who've read both plays. 
to move on to the synopsis just briefly, um, the play takes place during the Detroit race riots, again, summer of 67. Um, this was in July, and it, again, part of the long, hot summer, what we call it now, looking back. Um, in Detroit, it was really a series of these violent confrontations between police and then the residents of what were primarily black neighborhoods in Detroit. It was a, about a five-day event. Nearly 50 people were killed, and a 1,000 buildings or like more than a 1,000 buildings were all burned down um, in one of the more notable race riots of that summer. And so this play takes place both just before and then during that. It's the story of a family, um, Michelle and Langston, who are brother and sister. They have recently inherited their parents' home in Detroit. Uh, their, their final living parent has passed on and left them the home now. And so they've moved into this home, and in the basement they're going to start holding parties. Michelle and Langston throw these elaborate kind of basement uh alcohol, music, dancing kinds of parties to make money. And so they're planning to pay the mortgage with these parties. And Michelle has a son who is in college. And so what they've inherited of the money, they're hoping to use to put their son or her son through college. Um, Michelle's husband has passed away before the action of the play. And so she's the sole income provider for her son in college. And that is kind of what they are planning at the beginning of the play to do with the house and the money that they inherited. And that plan changes over the course of the play, primarily because Langston and his friend Sylvester, um, they have decided to go in on purchasing a bar. As one of the things that happened in kind of the precursors to the Detroit race riots was this uh, white flight, right, which is that white people were moving out of the uh, inner city areas to the suburbs. And so that's kind of the precursor for this play, too. Uh, a white gentleman owned the bar, and he is participating in the white flight and moving out to the suburbs and selling the bar. And so Langston and Sylvester decide they want to go in on that bar with some of the money that Michelle and Langston inherited from their parents. So that's kind of one of the complicating actions that goes on. Another complicating action is that uh, Caroline, who's a white woman, uh, sort of appears on the street one day, battered and bruised, and Langston and Sylvester find her and bring her home because she is so injured and so out of it that they feel that they need to help her. And she becomes, she ends up working for Michelle and Langston running these parties as a way to make a little bit of money and kind of stay out of the public eye. You know, what has gone on in her past that led her to be here, why she's hiding is one of the sort of mysteries of the play that's revealed. She ends up working for them at these parties to make the money to buy a bus ticket out of Detroit is her goal. Her and Langston end up developing um, the beginnings of a romantic relationship across the course of the play. And then, of course, the, the other major complicating factor is that the race riots begin to go on outside their house. Buildings are burned. Langston and Sylvester try to go and defend their bar, which leads to some violent and, and fairly negative interactions with the police. Langston is arrested and beaten, um, and then eventually they go back out to try to defend their bar one more time and Sylvester at the kind of climax of the play that happens off stage, Sylvester is killed in the race riots and Langston comes back to deal with the memory of his friend and, and what's all happened to them and this family across the course of the play. Um, that's kind of the, the major complicating events, the things that go on over the course of the script. Of course, on no script, we, we don't do no spoilers, so that was full spoilers uh, for the play. So there's no hiding. I'm sure I've missed some things, but that's the general context for the play. 
Um, Kay, I'd love to hear your perspective as a director on who you felt was kind of the central character or protagonist. Whose story is this? I mean, there's so many incredible characters in the play, and they all battle for attention because they're all incredibly witty and and moving, I think, a fairly deep well for, for each of the characters to pull from. So who, who did you find in your production and your directing that you really felt like you could kind of center around as the story? That is a great question because, like you said, the, the characters really are it's, it's everyone's story in so many ways in this particular place. So um, basically I saw it a bit more as Lang's story, as Langston's story, um, the brother. Um, I saw it a lot as his story because of the changes he goes through. He, he had his, his arc is just very complex and um it's very moving. It's tragic in so many ways, not just in any one aspect, in any one area of his life. Is it is it tragic? It, it's tragic across the board, pretty much. So um, that kind of loss of innocence, that awakening um, that occurs in his character, um, and then that that repair, right? That uh, phoenix rising out of the ashes, literally and figuratively. Um, at the end, we, we aren't left. I think it's really important to note that at the end of the show, we're not left with a feeling of loss, uh, to the, uh, to the point of hopelessness. Um, we're not left with that feeling. We're left with a feeling of hope, uh, with a feeling that we can go on, we can make it through tomorrow. And not only that, but that tomorrow can be even better. Um, that we, we are changed by this. Yes. But not destroyed by these circumstances. And um, that is reflected in their personal lives through these characters. But I think it's just such a, a poignant mirror as to what the city of Detroit and this region as a whole faced and continues to face today. Mm, yeah, I, I love the way that you described Langston's journey from this sort of almost innocent optimism at the beginning of the play. He has a really lovely speech in his first scene about um, wanting to buy up some of these businesses that are being abandoned by the white flight and how he imagines that's going to change the city of mm -hmm. Detroit. And the characters around him, their reaction is to sort of roll their eyes at him as he has this monologue. And and then Sylvester goes on to say that, you know, uh, Lank, you, you see yourself as, as a, like a messiah figure <laughs> that you can sort of roll in and save people and save the city and save everybody because you're Langston. And, and of course, he... He ends up in a really helpless position when he's arrested and beaten by the police personally. And then he has his friend, I mean, quite literally murdered out from under him. He, there's a really terrible description of watching his Sylvester's chest open uh, in the shooting that just makes you feel like there's been a real change in his perspective on what's going to happen now like what but you know what that even occurred in in the love aspect we can't forget about carolyn because uh up until him before he he met carolyn you know lank was the the smooth one 
<laughs> Lake was the playboy. He could have whomever he want. He could dismiss whomever he wanted to, you know? So when Carolyn came in and disrupted this flow, he, that was really the first time he realized he can't be with whoever he wants to be with, whether they love each other or not, whether they're attracted to each other or not, because here's this woman um, that is, vibing with his energy on every level and you know they do move it into that physical level as well in the play um but he he cannot be with her because of society standards and um you know the time that they lived in and i think that was the death of that innocence as well he didn't it, he, it never crossed his mind that he could meet someone, fall in love with them, and not be able to be with them because he's lame. Yeah, the the character description that Dominique Morceau provides at the beginning of the play, um, it, it, after a, a number of other descriptions, she says that Lank has a special effect on women, but not a womanizer. And he has kind of a, a playful, flirtatious relationship with the only character that I didn't mention in my synopsis, which is um, Michelle's friend, Bunny. And they have a, I don't know, it's a very, it's an interesting relationship. And Michelle seems like at some points she sort of expects Bunny and Lank to be together in, in a more uh, committed way than they, they seem to be. Um, but it's this introduction of Caroline, which kind of, alters Lank's view of his relationships. Uh, and, and as you were describing, then late in the play, he has a monologue where he kind of lays that out and says, when I was with Caroline, uh, it felt like there there weren't any rules, right? That I could break all these rules and do what I wanted, you know, regardless of the color of my skin and the color of her skin. But, and then it's a really heartbreaking short snippet of a line that he his reflection on all of this happening and then looking back on his sort of quick relationship with Caroline the reflection is but rules are rules ultimately that's not true that's not possible yeah and um they mentioned Michelle is definitely more grounded in general um in the play uh hit Link's sister in the uh play but um she's constantly I think in that interchange she has reminded him over and over by this time that that is not allowed, that you need to get your head out of the clouds. That, uh, and I believe they've referenced that as well a lot, that he's always walking around with his head in the clouds and things of that nature, but that she live, we live here on earth. <laughs> we live on the ground. And so she's really his grounding in a lot of ways. Um, and so when you know, by the end of this, all of that is broken up in for Lank. All of that is different than where we where he began. So, um, he, his journey is is everyone's journey in some sense. You know, because we've all had that na naivete in a situation and gone into it and had our hearts broken in a way, and now it's different. Um, and you know, how do you recover from that? Where do you go from there? So. Yeah, he he's very much a dreamer, and and some of what happens to him in the play is that it, not only is his specific dream of being kind of a legitimate bar owner rather than throwing these basement parties, that specific dream is challenged by the race riots and by Caroline too. 
um, in that their business might be burned down. The police want to prevent them from signing the papers, etc. But then also just like the idea of being a dreamer is sort of challenged. Can you step outside of the rules that society has really written for you? And one of the things that's uplifting, I think you said that the play doesn't end in a hopeless place despite the death of Sylvester and all this stuff. The play sort of makes the point at the end that you still can be a dreamer. It's still worth it to imagine stepping outside or pushing against those rules. And I think that's so important because, you know, specifically... I feel, you know, obviously, if this play had been written with a family of a different race, it would be a little different. Um, and I like to say that it's poignant for that time that they're a black family. But, you know, fortunately, even though that was 50, you know, 60 years ago, um, we're still facing similar things today. And, I, and that's why I think it's even more important to to revisit uh, this play and others that uh retain these themes of, yes, you can still be a dreamer. Um, yes, you can still live with your head in the clouds, despite, um, you know, the limitations that society places on you for your sex or your gender or, you know, your identity, uh, your race. So I, it's just such a, a powerful powerful show yeah and well it's a 2013 play but it's it's relevance to some of the things that are specifically going on in the world it has really come to like full bloom it seems like i mean it feels to me that directing the play as you did right in the fall after kind of our own in america our own long hot summer of 2020 uh it felt very very present and very immediate with what went on with the Black Lives Matter movement is still going yeah. on. And um, rightly so. The, the, the cast was amazing. Uh, the administration was amazing. I never felt all of the staff, the faculty at Albion were amazing. Dominique was amazing. Um, there was no one there that wasn't vested emotionally, personally. It wasn't just a, a, an item to place on your resume, you know, for the, the students or for myself. It wasn't just something to keep me occupied and my mind off of COVID. This was going into it. I really got the sense from everyone and have had actual conversations with some of them as well that this was necessary. It was needed. Um, even the, the, uh, the dean got behind it because, you know, as soon as he heard, um, Zach's concept, the the uh, director of theater, his concept about it, and you know the what it's about, they, they got behind it because we definitely saw where there's this open wound here, you know, um, in our society here in America. There's this, it's it's an open wound, it, and it it keeps getting picked at, and so it can never really heal. And some of these things are processes that will help it to heal, um, but it definitely has to be uh, confronted head on. So we all went in there as if we were soldiers for this mission to get this message out and to promote this healing um, through this art and through that piece in particular. Right. And one of the things that's so particular about the piece, especially for the college like where you presented it, is that that's a college that's only uh, a handful of hours outside of Detroit from the state of Michigan. And for the students to be able to tell a story about their area that then has the ability to speak into their world today. Yeah. 
uh, I just have to imagine was incredibly layered and powerful. As I saw the production photos back in the fall, you were talking about getting shivers remembering it. I remember looking at the production photos and just being in mm-hmm. awe of the the way that this story was going to um, impact not only the cast, but also the audience, but also the broader world. Yes. And, I, you know, that's important because... Being called Detroit 67, I feel that it's really easy to automatically pigeonhole on what you think it could be about, on what what is going to be discussed. Oh, it's a, it's about the race riots. Well, no, not really. Um, oh, it's a, it's about Detroit, but this is a story that echoes everywhere, um, in in different ways. So I I think that um, it's really important that people are aware that it's not just a regional story. It's not a local story. It it's definitely has that broader impact. And can I say, cause you mentioned uh, spe- the, how it speaks in, in their voice or, you know, locally in our voice. One of the things that attracted me so much to this show was that it is the vernacular in which it's written, the cadence, the, the, the mm-hmm. way, the words that she chooses if you want to know what it was like or what it is like to visit a family in Detroit, read this play. <laughs> I I have uncles that sound like Sly and Link. <laughs> I have aunts that sound like Shell. I have my I have uh-huh. an aunt that's more like Bunny, who's a little more in the in the street knowledge, you know, and a little more wild. We would say a little out there, you know. <laughs> She's so, I mean, Dominique Morisot is so good at capturing not only like the persona of a character, but also their speech patterns and their movement patterns. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's actually rare to find a playwright that has at one hand kind of a unique voice. I mean, this is very much a Dominique Morisot play, but on the other hand, every individual character sounds very dissimilar from other characters in Skeleton yeah. Crew, in uh, Paradise Blue, etc. It, it, it is definitely a gift that she has. And, I, she just totally encompasses, you, it's very easy being someone who's from this region. It's very easy to see your real life person that each of those characters represent. Everyone has, and even speaking to other members of the cast at Albion with, when we did the show, uh, one of them was from Detroit as well. Um, uh, a couple of them were from, well, actually two of them were from Detroit. I believe one was from Chicago area. Um, we had a few from the suburbs and things of that, but uh, the ones who were from Detroit, we like, oh yeah, that's that's such and such. He stayed off of Linwood, and oh yeah, we know him. That's such and such from Chicago. Like, <laughs> yeah, my aunt grew up in Black Bottom. I know that's that's her too. You know, I could see <laughs> so clearly all these people and their energy and their spirit is definitely just encompassed in, in the way that she writes. That I, I I feel mm-hmm. that she has a clear indication who each of these people are when she's writing and she can, you know, very clearly hear what they're saying. I, I, I would imagine if I was a fly on the wall that the dialogue is maybe the easiest part for her. I feel it probably just rolls mm. out of her fingertips and out of her brain from, you know, this, uh, this root in the community that she has. So. Well, I want to pivot a little bit off of something that you had said just a few minutes ago about the play not so much being a play about the Detroit race riots, because I think that's an interesting insight that a lot of the summaries and reviews and all that that you're going to read about the play kind of lead with that sort of um, 
historical view. And of course, it won that Edward M. Kennedy Prize for historical play that it takes place during the race riots. But this is a play that takes place in a basement kind of separated from the violence and the action that's going on outside. The characters all leave to go participate or fight against or whatever at different moments, and they bring in news from the outside, and we hear things that are going on outside, but this is not a play where you're going to have to cast crowds of people to march across the stage and wave their fists and crowds of actors to play police officers and and block all of these incredibly violent confrontations, right? There, There is a layer of removal from the action of what's going on outside for what we see in the play. I'm curious, what's your perspective on how that impacts the story that we see? Well, I think that makes the difference. That that makes the entire difference. No, this is not at the barricade and Les Mis style um, show. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's not that. Right. Um, so, okay, my mom was alive during the riots. It was not happening in her neighborhood, but it was happening all over the city. And she recalls and has retold to me um, how she remembers the tanks going down eight mile and this fear of dread, like seeing real life tanks, like coming down your neighborhood to go blast people that look like you. And, you know, she the fear and that uncertainty that came about that. And I think it's so easy um, when people read about these things or watch them on TV or study them in a historical aspect, that it's easy to just see those images, right? The soldiers, the rioters, the anger, um, the, the property loss, the destruction, um, that came from it. But these were real people. Uh, they were real people in those buildings. They were real people in front of those tanks and behind those gun muzzles and things. So um, I think by her keeping us in this safe little bunker, which is the basement, uh, reminds us that there's so many other things going on. There's so many layers to this. That That is the icing mm. on the cake. Because if you look at the events leading up to when the riot starts in the script itself, they've already got a few things happening. <laughs> they've got a few yeah. struggles on their plate, aside from being Black in a segregated city, <laughs> in a segregated mm-hmm. world. So it's just, you know, the layers are just adding up. And now here we go. Oh, here we go. Now mm-hmm. it's something else. Now they bring it. Now someone shot someone. Now something's on fire, you know, and that and that's mm-hmm. almost how it's, the events of the riot are actually revealed. It's like we've got to worry about this bar. Link used up all of daddy's money. My husband's dead. You know, it, mourning and all of these things that are already going through. And now on top of that, oh, there's a fire. Oh, there's tanks coming down the city. So... Yeah, they they bring in these really vivid descriptions of what's going on in their neighborhood and in the broader neighborhoods around them. Uh, At one point, Michelle says, um, you want to talk about scared. I stepped out onto the porch this morning to a cloud of smoke. Look like we in some kind of war picture. Mean looking guards coming down this street, hunting us like we're the enemy. And so there, there is a presence to the events that go on. But there's also this level of where Dominique Morisseau sets up that the characters sort of have a choice 
to go out and participate or to stay where they are and kind of hunker down. Michelle is constantly, I mean, in almost every scene after the riots start, she's trying to get Lank not to go out and participate in what is going on outside. There's a sense of the basement and the bunker as kind of a safe place. But it's also a safe place that's been invaded, right? Because we have this this figure of Caroline who brings in a different layer of what's going on outside. Yes, to most definitely. And I, I think that definitely shows in the script that uh, territorial nature that Michelle has um, when Carolyn enters. Uh, her demeanor definitely. She's she's a strict woman. Let's let's put it that way. Michelle. She dots all her I's, she crosses all her T's, she says her P's and Q's, but, um, you know, Carolyn coming in there, it it jumbles all of that up to a level of her being uncomfortable, that she feels her family is in danger by Carolyn being there. So she becomes more of the mama bear, the matriarch of the family, and we see a lot of that before, but it escalates when Carolyn enters and expresses these interests in Langston and Link returning those interests as well. So um, it's very, it's a lot going on. I feel also that Dominic uh, places us in that bunker because this is Shell's home. And she actually, there's actually a section where uh, her and Link are talking about that. She's like, this is our home, you know? Um, She references paintings on the wall um, that Lank made and that her dad made, you know, from decades ago at this point. But she says, you know, I'm going to do everything. We have to fight for our home. We have to protect our home. And this is before the riots. She's speaking of this in terms of um, the financial security that she hoped uh, the life insurance policy that dad left was going to provide for them. Um, But it's very poignant to how a lot of people felt Uh, about their property during the riots as well. You know, we don't have much, but we have this home. It's ours. It's been in our family now for at least a generation, maybe more. And I'm going to do everything I can to protect it. And I think in the actual riots, that may be where some people got caught up is feeling that they need to protect their uh, community. And therefore they went out and inadvertently or unpurposefully contributed to the chaos instead of have helping to remedy it. Um, that's my own personal opinion. It's not based in <laughs> any kind of historical fact or anything, <laughs> but I, I understand that um, wanting to protect what they have at all costs. And I think Shell is in that mode for sure. And there is an, it, there's an eminent threat to that. Right? I mean, Bunny, who makes a lot of quips during the play, she's a little bit of a comic relief character at times, but she uh, then occasionally the way that she quips, there's a really beautiful nugget of seriousness in there. Like at one point, she qu- they're talking about um, Michelle's son perhaps coming to visit at Christmas time, and Bunny quips something like, "If Detroit is still standing at Christmas time, right?" So there's a there is a sense that. Um, their community may not exist after this. And that really, you combine that with the noise of the tanks running outside, the idea that when you step out on your porch that you're walking into a war zone and you even build up further this idea that the the basement is a bunker, but that the bunker itself may disintegrate in the war. Mm -hmm, Indeed. We, We definitely see the weight of what is going on outside of the bunker on the characters, I feel. Um, because as you mentioned, how Bunny is kind of 
have a character relief, uh, uh, comic relief in the story. Uh, Bunny is the quintessential party girl, in my opinion, from the from the sixties. And my my great aunt Bessie, God rest her soul, was bunny back in the day now i grew up i'm not going to tell all of my age because you know the camera makes you look all right when you got your lighting uh good so people you know i play i can play 20 to 40 but anyway um my age range but i have a great aunt bessie and growing up in the 80s and 90s she was the one who was always had the worst dances when we were at of family gatherings, please don't put on, you know, uh, George Clinton and P-Funk and she'll be down on all fours talking about this is called the dog and like doing things that you just don't feel a great aunt should do. But that, that was Bunny back in the day. So Bunny was the good time girl. Bunny knows where to get whatever makes you feel good. She knows who's in these streets. Uh, she has a couple little sugar daddies. She has a few friends like Lank. Uh, you know, she doesn't take length serious. That's just one of her play things. She has many of them. But as this show progresses, we kind of see that weight of what's going on outside in the war zone, quote unquote, um, affecting her as well. And the the nuggets of knowledge that comes in, she she attempts to stay positive. And I, I feel that just like a good friend would, she does it for Shell because she knows Shell is going to always see the negative side, always be planted in realism. And right now, as the riots progress, the realism is is pretty grim. So I feel Bunny definitely tries to keep that level of happiness going, or at least um, not worry. She doesn't bring a worried energy, but we do see it kind of start to wear on her as well um, throughout the show. Um, and that, I think, is when I really start to get sad watching <laughs> in that second act, you know, kind of as it's going on. I'm like, oh, gee, even Bunny's not her normal self. This is serious. Yeah, she's got this kind of, uh, it's it's painful a little bit just because of all the other transitions, but she, she ends one of the scenes like not being able to work the new eight track player that's been going. And, and uh, Dominique uses so many incredible music transitions and they're all kind of centered around the use of this eight track player that's that they bring in at the start of the show. But there's this moment at the end of one of the scenes where Bunny just cannot get it to work and she's beyond frustrated. And for all of us, it's like, oh, this is, this is how the play moves is with music from this player taking us from scene to scene and location to location. And there's, this there's a metaphor for like bunny as a character being unable to make this thing work being uh you know like you have said impacted by what's going on to the point of her personality being affected but then there's like a meta level impact on the play of like things being stuck mm -hmm. because of what's going on yeah and and i think as an audience member or, or reader you definitely want it to move along because it, it it gets heavy and then heavier and heavier and heavier and it feels like you go down this rabbit hole and we all obviously at this know what happens in the riots um, as far as the destruction and loss of life and property. And um, I believe that people around the country, people outside of this region know what happens to Detroit after that, as far as its decline and um, into high, higher crime rates and the continuation or, or um, completion of the white flight, et cetera. Um, but we don't, 
know how that story is going to resolve. And so we are so ready at by that point to have the party atmosphere back. You know, when, when are they going to have another party? Right. Will they be able to have another party? Um, and it it's really, but it, I, I just so enjoy how uh, Dominique writes those scenes because uh, when you, you mentioned the music, the music and the soundtrack that uh, we, you know, is noted specifically in the script is what really has fueled Detroit for generations. Um, it's I don't think it's common for people our age and younger to necessarily know um, songs from the 60s and 70s. But here in Metro Detroit, if you mm-hmm. don't know anything else from back then, you know Motown music. <laughs> and I think, you know, it sure. was... Uh, <laughs> Almost not th- almost therapy. Music was therapy for a lot of us. It's it it was a very talented town. Um, there's always been a lot of talented musicians and singers. Um, a lot of artists are a lot of art here in uh, Detroit in its heyday, quote unquote, and even now. So I think her using the um, Motown soundtrack of our lives uh, as their soundtrack, their lives. Uh, helps to give us hope as well. Because even, I think she uses uh, How I Wish It Would Rain um, at one point. And if you've ever just sat and listened to that song and how we, you know, obviously in the a transition of a play, you don't get to hear a lot of it. But just hearing that... Like... That's when it's like, I feel like I need to sit back and have like a scotch in my hand and just reflect. So it, it, it just, it encompasses the, the mood and the feeling of the people um, of the time and of these characters and their descent into, you know, this uncertainty for their city and for themselves um, very nicely. And, and it was brilliantly done. And I think it was a great representation of um, how we feel about Motown music. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she pays it off, the use of this music to kind of move us through the play so well, both in the way that like the characters talk about music a lot. So it's not just some sort of separate element from what's going on in the play, right? They're par- they throw these parties, they have a big new eight track system. So they're talking about music a lot. And then there's that way that she, in, in the scene just before Sylvester is going to end up dying, she kind of brings Sylvester and Michelle together in a, in a touching heart to heart moment where he sings a snippet mm-hmm. of Reach Out, I'll Be There by the Four Tops to her and it's kind of it's one of those things where it's like he's singing what she needs to hear um and then after he he dies and in the final scene of the play this is actually how the play ends is uh michelle sort of dancing with herself the way that she had danced with sylvester in the scene and she's playing that song Mm -hmm. on their player and so that ends the play using that musical transition that we're all used to but now the transition itself has really become part of the storytelling in telling us that Sylvester's gone. It's definitely, it is a living element. The music is, uh, and these transitions is definitely a living aspect in this script because uh, backtracking just a bit, I believe the bunny transition where she doesn't get the eight track player to work 
may be the only transition that isn't doesn't have music written in specifically. So now we have that silence in anticipation of this dread uh, as things are building and we're building to this climax. But then also if you take it back to how she placed each song purposefully and thoughtfully because we all know the reach out part of that song but the first line is if you feel that you can't go on and all your hope is gone and life is filled with must confusion and happiness is just an illusion and the world around is crumbling down darling reach out so if that isn't hitting the nail on the head for what Shell and Link and those who were touched by Sly are going through at that time. If that isn't a a mirror to what the city would have been going through specifically at that time, because when Sly got shot, uh, uh, he wasn't, I don't, mm, I'm trying to think what day of the riots they would have been on. There was maybe still one or two days left of rioting before the official end, quote unquote. So it, definitely was a song that was needed that that message was needed to be heard not just by shell but i feel by us reading and watching the show as well and and it does help with that feeling of hope because someone can reach out for you and in some of the other moments there's like there's a sort of a little bit of escapism to the music which is helpful these things that are going on and then we get to move inside these musical transitions and then there are those moments like those lyrics where you quoted where there really it, it, there is no escapism to it it is an exact uh, storytelling device for exactly what's going on in the city, in the characters' lives, and it layers itself on top of your experience so incredibly that it becomes this just powerful, moving moment. So powerful. And I wonder if it would have been as powerful if it was any music other than Motown. <laughs> that could just be the Detroit girl in me, but... <laughs> Well, I want to pivot in these kind of final few minutes of our conversation a little bit and talk with you as a director. I'm also a director about one of the things that I love about Dominique Morisot, which is her stage directions. As a director, there's so much to love. Skeleton Crew especially has some incredible moments, but this one does too. I want to just read a couple of stage directions that I loved. The first one is from the beginning of the script. Um, Michelle is uh, negotiating with this record player that keeps scratching. And eventually uh, the stage direction is, uh, she's, she's, Michelle asks the record player to behave because they're about to have a party. And the stage direction is, somehow the record player agrees. <laughs> Be imaginative. I mean, that that's awesome. <laughs> and then later on, she has other representative moments, too, where she just tells you what's supposed to happen in the experience, but not how to do it. There's the scene where uh, Langston and Caroline are getting uh, more and more interested in each other. And the stage direction is uh, getting even hotter need to cool down, right? What This is how the characters are supposed to be. That's what's happening in their relationship, mm-hmm. but she doesn't tell you how you're supposed to do it. That's for you and the cast to tell that story. Later on, uncomfortable silence, air, tension, thickness. Yeah. Right, what you're, it's the she tells you the story, but not the method to get to the story, and that's where I just love her theatrical imagination. Yes, it's refreshing, and because no one, I, I not saying that it was as specific as, uh, well, some let's say some get very specific, <laughs> right, as how mm-hmm. you are to accomplish certain things and certain looks, and at that point where 
it, it, I feel like it can take things away, right? She has written a play that has the ability to be done most anywhere with most any company. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? It's not overly elaborate. It takes place in one location. Um, it doesn't have 30 people in it. And I think this just uh, helps to create the fact that you can do this anywhere with whatever your abilities are, whatever your creativity is, whatever your spatial or even creative limitations are due to budget, whatever, what have you, uh, even maybe due to, um, actor's experience, director's experience. This this makes mm. it, making it more vague and allowing that creativity to come through uh, is brilliant. And I, uh, I enjoy her stage directions as well because of that. And as I was reading them through the first time um, reading, because unfortunately that was actually the first show that I've ever read by her um, was mm. Detroit 67, but I think a great place to start so I chuckled so much <laughs> at the stage direction yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and my mind began working immediately on how to create the this tension like when you were saying getting hot in here like I, I laughed out loud <laughs> because mm-hmm, of course yeah. we know exactly what she's talking about but she put it in such a way that it's like okay and my creativity just started blooming okay how can we do that and then especially this was a difficult from a director standpoint a difficult project, navigating blocking and things like that, um, sexual tension in days of COVID, right? No yeah. vaccine in sight at that time, um, having to maintain per the university's request of, of and CDC standards, six feet still. Um, so the creativity, writing the stage directions in that way just allows that creativity to flourish. And I'm so very thankful to her and all the playwrights who uh, give those stage directions in a more vague way, right? Um, the, the, the theme or what needs to be accomplished is there, but how you accomplish that is your own. And I think that uh, really ups the ante. Well, what you're describing, I think that's what directors really want when they're reading scripts that they're going to direct is they want to have where they read a a scene or a stage direction or what have you. And their creativity, I think you said, sort of blooms Mm -hmm. where you go, how am I going to do this? How what's the relationship going to be? How are we going to block it? How are we going to visualize this moment? And as a director, that happens sometimes. But a lot of the times you just read stuff like that and you're just sort of checking boxes. Okay, they got a kiss right there okay i just got to do the kiss okay then we got to do this but then there are moments where you come across how do you get the record player to agree with michelle Mm -hmm. that the record player is going to work like she imagines how are you going to get air tension thickness Mm -hmm. right what does that mean how are you going to visualize it it just it inspires you to want to do the work of putting it on its feet because you don't know what's going to happen when you try exactly and it and you know, your first incarnation or your first thought may not end up being the last, the development that it goes through and that process, that's what we salivate for, right? That That's mm-hmm. what we really want. You know, it's it, it's almost, you know, from the acting standpoint, if you have a, a, a script that tells you every little part of the character and now there's no room to bring your own part into it, your yes. own self, uh and so, you know, it becomes very one-dimensional, very flat. It becomes very repetitive in nature uh, from theater to theater, from run to run, you know. Um, so doing it like this, we, we could see a million productions and they'll all be so different, 
<laughs> yes. In how it's staged and blocked and how that tension is created. Or like you said, how the record player complies and things of that nature. So um, it, it's set up for success, let's say. She sets you up for mm-hmm. success in her script writing. Well, this is just, it's an incredible script. It's an incredible project that she tries to do across the three plays of her Detroit project to capture the incredible changes the city has gone through. Um, I just think she's a wonderful playwright. I I can't wait to see the next group of things that she comes out with and and what stories they're going to tell. That's kind of the end of our time as we're we're able to wrap up. Any last burning thoughts that you want to share with people about uh, your experience with the play or what you love? Um, Well, I want to say more about what I love about the playwright, if I may. Please. Um, I actually, because there's so little going on at that time and the the we were battling some uh, COVID scares within our cast, um, they, the, they were feeling a little down and something told me to reach out to Dominique and see if she had a word of encouragement for the students. And oh, so, wow. you know, I reached out to her on her Instagram and I DM'd her and I'm like, you don't know me. Uh, I'm hometown girl like you. We doing this show on Albion. We're trying to do it live. We're having issues. They're feeling a little down. Can you just say something? And she just wrote back a message and she said, this is amazing. You guys are amazing for doing this. Um, I'm going to be praying for you guys that you get through this. And she just really reached out in a personal way. She gave a personal message to them that I was excited and happy to pass along. Um, and I feel that, uh, she hasn't gotten to the point where she doesn't feel like she's not in our community. Um, she's actually just been named recently the artistic director for Detroit Public Theater, uh, which is a regional professional theater here in Michigan, um, in, in Detroit. And I'm just so looking forward to see what and how she grows our acting community here in Michigan. Um, we're really proud of what she's doing in the community and in her work. So support, support, support. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great story. Wow. It's awesome that she was personally willing to express support for the production. I I have found that a lot of playwrights are willing to do that. We think sometimes of playwrights as these artistic Mm -hmm. partners that we have that are kind of separate, that all you get is the script and you got to work from that. But I I found that oftentimes playwrights are willing to be a a more involved artistic partner than that, expressing support for the cast, discussing their work. Uh, The the theater community is, is an incredible community at large yes. um and we I, we i think we feel that in terms of ensembles direct directors actors technicians we feel that community but I, playwrights are part of that awesome community too and they they want to be part of it i think yes most definitely and i i know as her schedule permits it <laughs> she is is the most involved as she can be but i i did not a hundred percent expect even a response because i know how busy mm-hmm. even in a time of a pandemic that artists are trying to set up you know where do we go next and being innovative and creative in how they do what they do so to uh, receive the response and it be so personal and uh, you know it wasn't a form response or a short quip even it was like paragraphs um, of, of, of a message uh, to essentially a bunch of college kids trying to p- pull off some stunt during COVID is <laughs> in essence what we did. Um, it was absolutely incredible. And um, just so looking forward to, well, I, I say looking forward to, but 
we are artists still doing what we do and finding new and innovative, awesome ways across the country to do it. So uh, kudos to all of us who are still hanging in here. <laughs> I love that. Kudos to us, yes. right? It's not just there's not other people doing the work out there. We as a group are. Yes. So kudos to us as the community and to everybody who's managed to persevere through COVID and do incredible pieces like what I'm sure was your production of Detroit 67. Um, thank you all for listening to our special guest episode. We, we love to do it. We can't wait for who the guest will be next season. We're already excited in anticipation of that. Um, the season is somewhat coming to an end. We're nearing the end of our season six and we'll announce the news about, uh, what kind of a break we're taking and when season seven will start. So be on the lookout for that. Kay, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, as a director, it's so fun to get to talk to another director director about your experience with the script. Jacob, it has been my absolute pleasure. You are a joy and I can't wait to hear what else you guys have to say for the rest of the season. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, to those of you who are out there, if you want to connect with our podcast further, you can find more episodes on Podbean, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. You can also like us on Facebook, and then you'll get a link to the new episode every Monday just posted on our public feed. If you want to continue the conversation with us, or we are happy to pass on your thoughts to Kay as well, you can email us, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We also are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram the handle is no script podcast you can connect with us there and we'd love to keep having a conversation about dominique morisot's play detroit 67 i'm jacob mann christensen and i'm kay edmonds thank you for joining us for no script the podcast bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.